Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. <laughs> loosen, gotta ooh, loosen my vocals up. Um, do you have any, do you have any the, exercises like tip of the tip? Keep it the I don't know whatever tip that one. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I uh, I never just the tip of the tip. I would, when I was in plays and whatnot in like high school and I guess Sorry, a little wait. bit in college. Uh, Hold the what? phone. We need a judge's ruling. Um, can you explain <laughs> the the plays that you were a part of? Sivu play. Well, I was that's that was the thing that I was literally about to do. Is oh. I was I was going to explain that I was I was uh, when I was in theater as much as I was, uh, I was in the pit orchestra playing trombone, mm. uh, oh, which means that I was not a part of the, the well, so yeah, it does yeah. tie into the thing we were, we were literally just talking about a second ago, uh, in that I do not, I was not involved in the, the weird kind of backstage uh, vocal exercises, but every once, in a while, every once in a while, I was around for them, and every once in a while, you would get suckered in. Uh, because theater kids love just involving uh, you sound like everybody Eric around Lamar in the rituals. Trying to explain how he is not a crip or a blood on Good Kid, Mad City, where you're like, well, I I wasn't a gangbanger, but I wasn't a stranger to them either. Except you're talking about fucking theater kids. That's, that's ex- well, I'm talking about theater kids, but uh, I, all I'm saying is that I've been around for some of those vocal exercises. They are ritualistic, cult-like, uh, but I do not unfortunately remember the specifics i wish i did have you read uh, susan Choi's trust exercise no it's a, a book about those kids and their their rituals and whatnot uh it's, it's kind of fascinating and and pretty fucked up theater oh. kids scum of the earth man <laughs> now the pit orchestra kids the jazz band kids hey, cool hey, coolest people yeah, yeah i do have to agree with that unfortunately yeah yeah, yeah. Marching band yeah, kids, cool to the no, really no cooler group of people in high school stereotypically than the marching band, jazz band kids. Uh, it was just part of the being, like fucking JV band where like you just take the class yeah, and you don't do any we, of the extracurriculars. Yeah, I mean, like I didn't want to. The thing was, I didn't actually like playing trumpet or want to practice or do anything except for be a very depressed high school student. So that's what I did. You know, did your parents make you play trumpet? Like, was no, this an really. executive decision? No. Why do you do it? Why do you stick with trumpet? Just because, like, it was that or take another class, you know? And, like, band class is, like, the easiest shit in the world. You just sit there and then pretend well, to yeah, play your instrument. Yeah, JV f- fucking all That's four right. years of high school. That's just... why I did it. Okay. And I do it all again. No regrets. Thank, thank you. It's great, for great lead in. Let's just, yeah, we can cut all that out. That's fine. A literal roundtable podcast. You know we're not. Where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets, digital showings, merch, club cards, uh, water bottles. What what else can they find there? Um, Poster, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of empty seats right now, hopefully. Um, hey. Yeah, that's true. For the near future, but stay tuned.
but hopefully, hopefully yeah, mid future, not so many empty seats. Right. Uh, yeah. And today, oh, sorry. Uh, my name is Jason Davnis. All I do is make excuses for my cowardice through nausea. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Kodam Nationson, and you can find me on Twitter oh, at Kodam underscore BH. Shit. Okay. Well, I'm a wreck who doesn't dare do anything, as you just heard. Uh, and I'm Harry, and you can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. I, I know that we uh, we we usually make a joke out of me forgetting to to get a quote from a movie. This this movie, I mean, we did talk about it while watching it. I specifically just am not like really. The only thing is to make a pun about the title, use one of the three very short quotations from this movie, or speak for fourteen minutes straight. Uh, it's about basically philosophy. just monologues. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's, that's but, not untrue. Yeah, my name's Aaron. You can uh, find me on Twitter at RB Please. Uh, you know what it is. It's Damnation, 1988, Bellatar. Uh, Aaron, what's it, what's it about? We're, fi- we're finally doing it, folks. Yeah. The the one you've been clamoring for. <laughs> we've got, we've gotten too back. many emails. Yeah, we've reached uh, 40,000 subs on Patreon. Everybody was saying, ah, this is our Damnation. <laughs> Put the tweet down, listener. We're finally doing it, so relax. Yeah, I think yeah. it was on our Patreon. It, it was between this and, um, I believe, Avatar, right? That was the <laughs> second place runner-up, but this one just edged it out. So thanks to all of our um, subscribers, all of our fans, uh, for making this one um, our sort of Patreon-exclusive welcome, etc. Yeah, uh, Damnation, 1988, directed by Bellatar, a uh, movie that will break records not only for the least amount of listeners uh, for an episode of ours, but also will uh, uh, break the record for the the just the hardest names for Aaron to pronounce in the summary uh, of a movie. Uh, this was uh, Bellatar, Hung- Hungarian director. It was his fifth film uh, and his first uh, working with uh, kind of famous, uh, great Hungarian novelist, Laszlo Krasnohorkai, I believe that's how that's pronounced, uh, who wrote the screenplay for this film, as well as uh, source novels for uh, several other uh, films by Bellatar, as well as uh, uh, screenplays and whatnot with him. Long-running uh, collaboration starting with this film. Uh, although Damnation was not Bellatar's first film, it is widely considered the film that helped to establish the style that he would uh, kind of further develop in films uh, later than this, such as Satan Tango, uh, Werkmeister Harmonies, and The Turin Horse, uh, his last film. Uh, some of the kind of notable elements that can be seen in this uh, movie and, and uh, kind of later films by the director include, for example, uh, the use of black and white photography, uh, very, very long, uh, unbroken takes, and uh, kind of everyday scenes that depict uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of a depressing uh, life uh, for his characters. Uh, Damnation specifically focuses on a man named Carer, uh, played by uh, Mlikos uh, Zikali, uh, who is kind of growing older and has been unable to find uh, any sort of meaning in life apart from an obsession that he has with an affair that he's having with a married lounge singer, played by uh, Valley Karakis. Uh, who is kind of a lounge singer at a local bar. Uh, when he is uh, offered, when Kara is offered the opportunity to act as the mule for a kind of smuggling job uh, to help transport a, a package, kind of ostensibly containing illicit materials, he passes it off to the lounge singer's husband, played by 
Georgi Serhalmi, I think, uh, pass it off to the lounge singer's husband in order to spend more time with her while uh, her husband is away. Uh, originally released in 1988, Damnation was restored uh, in 4K uh, from the original 35mm just last year in 2020 by the Hungarian National Film Institute. Uh, Jason, in all of its original go. glory, right, as we found out, uh, and we'll perhaps <laughs> talk about later. Well, all, now we have to, the, yes. All of the original imperfections, shall we say, are present in this all film. All the hairy little details. Nothing, uh, nothing was straightened, uh, you know, no <laughs> corners to cut. Uh, hey, just a fun fact, uh, Georgi himself also was in um, Son of the White Mare, uh, another, another Yo, Hungarian who, who, on this podcast. Yeah. Who was he? Uh, I Let's 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 see. Let's find this out. Um, Georgi, Consult Mr. Georgi, internet. Oh uh, shit! We're going to the uh, tapes. Well, it's at the top of the cast list on Letterbox, so I'm assuming it was he was tree shaker himself, player. huh? Yeah, indeed. Uh, anyway, that's Georgi. Um, and I'll give my top level thoughts about this movie. Um, in researching just a little bit, of course, we watched this uh, last night together just to have it under our belts. Um, in researching this movie since then, I found that a lot of critical response to it was either focusing on one of two things, sort of the, the nihilism of it, the meaninglessness of it, quote unquote, or like really, really laying it on thick with the whole, it's rich with symbology and meaning type. I think I, they're very vague about it and don't actually specify what the, yeah, classic. I love that sort of criticism. And I think that I believe and don't believe both of those things. I think that, um, I think, I think I believe neither. I think I believe both. I think it's just in measure. Um, I think that, Rather than being about the story that's at the heart of it or, you know, the quote unquote plot, I think it's more about painting the world in which these like sort of sordid, sexy affairs are taking place in the least sordid, sexy way possible. Um, the script kind of comes through like poetry, but I feel like that's completely at odds with the very like dirty pedestrian plot. Um, it's a strange, con- strange contrast. I don't know if it worked for me, but I'm really eager to hear if, if it worked for anybody else. Um, I think it does speak to a richer something inside of the story. Uh, and I'd be, I'd really love to poke around at that, but yeah, overall it's like really, I don't know if I'd call it captivating. It can be really frankly dull and boring a lot of the time. So only I I guess watching the movie is, was one experience and thinking about it later is another. Um, and I guess talking about it on top of that is another, uh, so we'll, uh, we'll get to it with some of Cody's thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Jason. We will get to it, hopefully. Um, yeah, I think my topmost thought is that this is a somewhat challenging movie, but also an incredibly beautiful one. Uh, much of what we experience here is a sort of gradual minimalistic world building, as Jason alluded to, partly through slow pans, partly through some other long takes that are mostly static, except for like a few in-frame elements. And then uh, we also get some scattered sequences in the bars of this town uh, to sort of, again, paint that world. Uh, and at its best, I think it's a movie that uses those techniques and like this environment to create a place wherein nothing happens because nobody has anywhere to go and or they don't have the means to go elsewhere uh, aside from like their houses and these pubs. Uh, I don't think they call them pubs there. Uh, Therefore, there's not a ton that we can see as viewers beyond these characters, either wallowing in the literal mud or making the best of their situation. Uh, And that sort of methodical nature to damnation is something I've been thinking about a lot in general with some other filmmakers in quarantine, namely with regards to like filmographies and how those styles evolve over time. That doesn't really apply here because this is the only work I've seen and probably we've seen from Bellatar, uh, Bellatar. Uh, but it's also tangential to how I 
kind of think about longer run times, you know, asking the sort of questions like, does this story earn this screen time or does this movie earn this sort of glacial pace? I think there's some sequences here that I genuinely really enjoyed and some others that fall more in the camp of, I appreciate this as opposed to I enjoy this. Uh, and that might also come from our protagonist who's kind of pointedly not redeeming or charming and like the most aggressive, obnoxious simp uh, whoever lived. Um, but like I said, I like this is a really nice movie to look at. I think even among its dreariness, um, the restoration probably has a lot to do with that. Um, it's very well textured. Uh, you get the classic image of cigarette smoke in black and white. You get um, you, you always know how much any given person is sweating in any given scene. Um, and you can see how sticky in the floor or how sticky the bar floors are, which for some reason really stood out to me. Um, shout outs to lockdown. Um, but the fact also that it's raining constantly and everyone is spouting those brutal, like pseudo philosophical lines of dialogue doesn't quite make it. I don't know if a vibe movie is the right way to characterize it, but it's definitely a movie that banks on its mood to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, but yeah, we'll get into it. Obviously um, those are the things I've been thinking about most since we all watched it uh, yesterday. Um, at the end of the day, like this is the exact type of movie that I love the trial on for uh, kind of regardless of where we draw the line on this. Um, because I like, I don't know if and or how I would have known to see this movie otherwise. Um, we've mentioned some of the other things that this director is well known for, and I've been wanting to see those uh, for a little while now, but if not for the trial and scheduling damnation, I have no clue how long it would have taken for his sort of deeper cuts uh, to fall on our radar. Um, but something that should be on everyone's radar is uh, what Harry thinks of this movie. Harry? Wow, what a transition. Thank you, Cody. I really like what you said at the end there about the trial on. Um and, and how it it can introduce us to um, films and, and like filmic histories that we would never have been exposed to otherwise. That's sort of my favorite thing to do, especially with the Trilon, right, is that um, I, I've talked at length about how much I enjoy uh, being exposed to things that I'm a total neophyte novice in, right? And like I need to be exposed to those things because they can broaden your horizons and they can um, challenge you and they can get you to reevaluate um, what you like and enjoy with more context, right? But the other side of that is that even for all that high-mindedness, actually beginning the process is tough, right? Because it sucks to be bad at things, right? And this was just a movie that I feel like I was inadequate at parsing, right? I mean, I think, and we'll talk about it, but I think I have a, a very constructed reading of it now, but I can identify the ways in which that's my sort of like um, formal exegesis, like stepping in to, to fill in for the, the lack of um, actual emotional response that this elicited from me, which I'm attributing primarily to just the idea that I have no context for this movie, right? Like I don't know anything about, Hungarian filmmaking in the 80s. I don't know anything about Hungary's relationship to uh, communism and relationship to industrialism, um, both of which are very important to this movie. Um, this movie's relationship to class and gender, um, also very important and interesting and engaged. But those are things that that miss me, right? So this movie reminded me a lot of the kind of thing that I would read in college as an English major, right? Or even some of the movies I would watch for film classes in college where it's just sort of like you are being presented with this this deeply um, important work that was in conversation with 
a whole context that you as a shitty sort of like 19 year old undergrad have no idea about. Right. And so like your exposure to it is fascinating and it's weird and it's wild and it, it, it engages you, but you don't have the, uh, the language to, to begin to sort it out. Um, I, that's sort of how I feel about this movie. It's really interesting that, um, it, it like feels a lot like a lot of the English books that I had to read in college, right. Particularly because of the novelist's relationship to it. Um, like this is like such a Dostoevsky story. Um, like it's, it's straight out of notes from underground. Like that character is the main character. Um, it also recalled a lot of like Sartre and Kafka and, uh, Beckett for me. Um, and even, uh, the, the bartender who gives the main character, the job reminded me a lot of, um, strike from my favorite book ever. Um, Miss Lonely Hearts, which I've talked about too much on this podcast. Um, but all of that is to say, like, I think I understand my impression of this movie and what it's doing about sort of like um, what damnation means to these people and the way that that uh, this man creates his own suffering because it's suffering that he needs to, to find definition and the way that um, that there is an escape from it that he can't see because he's too uh, drawn up in it. Um, this movie does a couple of really fascinating formal things with that theme. I think in particular, the second half where the dancing sort of like literally takes such precedent that the plot ceases to exist. And we inhabit a totally different space for like almost the entire second half of this movie. I find that very fascinating. Um, but all of that is to say, right? Like, I don't necessarily feel that I'm, um, I like, I would not pitch an article about this movie right because i don't feel like i'm up to it but i'm on this podcast and like we're making this podcast and so we're gonna we're gonna state our thoughts as a, a bunch of uh you know uh white late 20s dudes who are trying to figure this movie out and it, it'll be fun um and like you know take us with a grain of salt which like should always be true right and like arguably even more so for like Wong Kar Wai or other movies like that but that's kind of what stood out to me about this movie um and we'll get into my my sort of like constructive reading later uh i would like to, i guess in in a, a little bit of opposition to what harry said uh i speak uh, authoritatively about this film uh objectively right, that is true uh, yeah never, Belitar is uh, your uncle or cousin. yeah he, I, he is my i i wrote my my uh master's thesis on the films of, of bellatar uh, no i you back and said that it was the best thing anybody's he did the the film crit hulk thing that uh with um <laughs> with do the right thing where he's like hey you got it this was it. You 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 did the right thing. It's weird because Spike Lee also wrote to me about my Bellatar thesis, uh, saying it was that good. So uh, no, uh, I guess I I kind of generally agree with uh, what a lot of of Harry said. Kind of dropping the the joke for a minute, um, but I do think that kind of and and you touched upon this. I don't think what I'm saying is is kind of in opposition to what you just said. But I do think that they're regardless of the the context of this film, kind of the political and economic climate, uh, the cultural climate that, that uh, Tar was creating this film in, and in, in a response to, I think that there's enough here to grasp at regardless. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that a lot of those comparisons might be kind of uh, maybe simplistic, but I, I do see, you know, I, I think if you kind of read a good amount about this film on the internet, there's a lot of comparisons made to, uh, I think something like Eraserhead specifically, uh, Elephant Man as well. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, film noir in this film at like the very basest level uh, that, that is kind of interesting. 
Um, so even though I, I think I agree with a lot of what Harry's saying, I think that we'll give it the college try uh, and, and see what we can come up with here. Cause I do, I do think that there is a lot here that is kind of understandable. It does feel like the tar is creating a film that does feel like a response to all of these kind of specific contexts, but also it does feel like a film that's also wrestling with something uh, more existential and kind of greater and more about kind of the hap- capital C condition of, of, you know, uh, living a life. Um, so it, it is in that way, kind of a hard movie to give kind of this short impression of um, it's this, incredibly incredibly slow film which is kind of wild because from everything that i've read it's supposedly one of the least slow films that tar has made or at least made uh kind of from this one on until what you consider kind of the core of his career supposedly there are shots in uh satan tango and the turn horse that are way way longer than the shots in this film which is is kind of wild to think about um but you know every aspect of this movie is devoted to showing the kind of slow drawn out and excruciating lives that the characters live and the ways that they go about dealing with each day i think that's something that a lot of people can maybe uh kind of you know find value in um but i think in this manner the movie is not just slow and drawn out it's about living a slow drawn out existence um, and kind of everything supports this. This is a movie where like every element is so devoted to like that, that thing that the movie is doing that it feels incredibly artistic, right? Like there's just in the background of shots, there will be fans just slowly circling, right? Um, there will be like the, the, the opening shot and then several shots as well through the film. There's these kind of mining carts that are being pulled uh, kind of this via this pulley system that stretches across the sky and, and as it's doing this, you know, these el- visual elements are also supported by the sound of the film. There's this constant creaking as these carts kind of move. Um, and it's, you know, as these characters are repeating the same day over and over again, there's all of these kind of uh, uh, symbols of that in the background. Um, and I, I find that kind of fascinating. Um, just honestly, I had a had a bit of an easier time watching it undistracted versus other films that I've seen recently, even kind of, uh, you know, films that are, are much more of kind of an assault on the senses, like a lot of what we watched with the, the Wong Kar Wai films. Um, I had kind of an easier time watching this one without finding an excuse to check for that notification on my phone um, to kind of see what was up on the internet or whatever. I think a lot of that is the fact that we streamed this together and we watched it together. But also I think that this movie is so engrossing in a lot of ways and it can be slow uh, and this individual scenes can be slow, but I think that they're all kind of rewarding, uh, not just in the moment, but also kind of thinking back at them. So uh, I like this movie a lot. I do think that there's, uh, you know, some moments in the film that take quite a bit of effort uh, but I think this is a film that even kind of the next day, I think I'm my impression keeps growing as I, I think about it and come back to it. So, Rewarding how? You said that these long takes, these fans spinning in the background, these mine carts moving and creaking is in the end rewarding. And like, how did, how, how? Uh, I, I think as someone who is, uh, you know, who generally thinks about a lot of the same themes that this movie, you know, I I don't think I share too much in common with some of these characters. Hopefully a lot of them are pretty bad people. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, is someone who is, is, 
confronted in the way that I think a lot of people are, specifically a lot of people who may not be terribly religious, uh, with kind of the uh, meaning of life and kind of the, the, with scare quotes here, kind of pointlessness of it and whatnot. Um, I think that uh, the struggles that these characters are facing, even if I find a lot of these characters to be pretty despicable people, uh, I find that a lot of what they're going through to be uh, at least understandable and kind of fascinating. Um, I, I, I guess a question that I was kind of thinking about as I, f- I finished this film is how much uh, how much these characters being judged by the director in a weird way and, and how much of uh, some sort of larger uh, kind of societal critique uh, there is that are these characters, you know, I think this is a film that is about characters who are immoral and who are self-serving in a way, but I don't yes. know if that's necessarily some sort of individual attack on the, these characters uh, and the, the morality that they uh, prescribe to, uh, or if it's some sort of larger uh, critique of the you know, system uh, that they live in. I think a lot of that is kind of what Harry is talking about, uh, about a context that we don't really have too much of kind of an end to. Um, but at the same time, you know, it is, this is a movie that like, kind of like something like Eraserhead, and I hate to just go back to like referencing Lynch films, but it's like, it's a film that is very clearly, every ele- every element of this film is very clearly devoted to uh, kind of the thing that this film is doing. And I think just as a, a visual experience, uh, it's fascinating in that manner, right? Does that, and realized, uh, it's totally realized, yeah. Very realized, even if that realization can be uh, slow, quite slow. Yeah, uh, to piggyback uh, just a little bit off of what Aaron was saying, and I'm probably just reiterating a lot of the same points, just different words, but I think there is like a certain visual satisfaction to a lot of these scenes or specifically shots where we're just sitting in places. Um, There is, uh, and I guess a few different ways, when the landscape is still and you get, like I brought this up during our watch, but like seeing a stray dog just walking across the frame when nothing else is moving and latching onto that like maybe it kind of speaks to and this could be too deep of a reading but like it maybe speaks to the idea of like we're living our humdrum lives uh this place is miserable but like any little thing that is different or kinetic that we can latch onto to like get through the day is like great we will do that and that's like maybe uh, just like a way for us to get through some of these tougher shots is to say, Hey, like this world is bad. Take a look at it for 15 minutes straight. And like, you made it to the end. Here's a dog crossing the frame. Um, there's so also like a, so many dogs, so many good dogs. Um, you can also get like a sort of like rhythm from like things that are kinetic slowly. Um, like doing the same thing that's sort of um i kept calling it a chairlift it's not a chairlift but like that thing on a on a pulley cable system that's moving in the background in so many of these shots like that is again like a, a soothing is a weird word to use but in a world where nothing else is happening uh or nothing else is moving like and you get that kind of compounded at the end in those dancing sequences that's sort of like everybody in the same room dancing in this weird choreographed spiral is like in its own way like again like we're using weird words here but satisfying is like kind of the word that that i come up with and whether that's emblematic of like what these what these characters are going through i'm not really sure but at least for me as a viewer that like 
having my eyes being able to dart to something and latch onto it and be like, yes, like I'm not drowning anymore. I've, I've got this buoy here. Um, that felt nice in moments. Yeah, both of you said a lot of things that I want to uh, pick up the thread on. First of all, um, Aaron's allusions to existentialism are obviously definitely warranted, uh, both with what you had said about the sort of the fact that we can still pick up on and um, and talk about a sort of like uh, grand theme divorced of politics. Uh, existentialism as a philosophy is, is semi-apolitical because it's more concerned with universal ideas of what it means to be human and what it means to have a self. Um, that is frankly probably what attracted to me so it, to me so much in, in college uh, when I was a, a far less political person than I am today, um, which, is, which is sort of interesting. I think existentialism is an interesting coming of age sort of philosophy, um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but uh, also, what you had to say about the fact that this is a movie that is simultaneously about amoral or immoral characters and it doesn't feel like a individual judgment of them, it feels more like an apology to me, right? In, in an apology in like the Socratic sense, right? In that it's, it's describing how these people came to be the way that they are and trying to elicit from you an empathy for them and an understanding of how their mental state could come to be the way it is. Um, in that way, it has a lot to do or a lot in common and a lot of connective tissue with like the Kurosawa existentialist movies we've watched, or even weirdly the Wong Kar Wai movies, particularly this movie's um, philosophy on interpersonal relationships and how they can be a sort of chosen salvation because they make you feel something. Um, this movie also reminded me a lot of like The Stranger, right? Uh, which we talked about at length in our um, The Man Who Wasn't There um, podcast, which is just to say that like, like the the stranger is about a, a person who does a terrible thing for almost no reason. Right. But it's also about explaining the interior of his mind and why he got there and why he did what he did. This movie strikes me as very similar. I think that we're not supposed to, um, like th this isn't supposed to redeem career, the, the terrible person, but it's supposed to make us understand him. Right. And understand the arc that he goes on. And it's something that is something that really holds up about this movie to me, even now. Right. Is like, I think I can understand how career being confronted with an absurd and not only absurd, but, but actively crushing, actively dehumanizing industrial world where God is not only not present, but seems to be actively damning you, punishing you for your continued existence, how this person who could make you feel something outside of it, this possibility of escape from this endless breaking cycle, um, this, this means of understanding some other feeling and feeling something different for just a little while, how you could become obsessed with it and how that could be sort of in the, the grand terrible irony of this movie that could itself become the damning aspect of, um, who you are, right? Like it's, it's Sardian again, right? Hell is other people where it's like, it's, it's the fact that he wants her that badly that makes her, that makes him into this, this inhuman person. And the reason he wants her so badly is because he's, that's the only way that he gets to feel human. Right. So like there, there's a really great, um, like absurdist irony at the, at the core of this movie. And it's really interesting how this movie broadens the frame beyond just this character, especially in the second half to let us see how there might actually be an alternative that we hadn't considered, but it's also deeply sympathetic with the ways in which the system is out to get you the, the ways in which, feeling like a human and existing as a human is really fucking hard in the world because humans aren't made for this world. Right. Um, and it, it gets there. Like, I think it does do that. And I think that's a lot of the, um, 
the satisfying thing that you're talking about, Aaron, is that we as the viewer are trained to get there, right? And we're trained by the absurdist, crushing feelings of oppression that we see depicted on the frame, right? Like the camera barely moves. We see these stray dogs sort of picking at the bones of this industrial society. The the coal is moving uh, in and out of this uh, outpost as if to like to demonstrate that that coal is the only thing that's ever going to escape from this place, not you, right? Like we never see anybody else leave. We just see the coal leave. Um, and all of these things are happening. And I think that they all have the um, the effect of really bringing us into the interior of who these people are in a way that is, that is very formal and very filmic. Um, and that is in itself um, very rewarding, right, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think that the... You know, we talked a little bit about and kind of tying into what you just said uh, about the kind of the various repetitive movements that are in every single scene, whether it's the mine carts or the fan or or just kind of people kind of slowly walking back and forth and whatnot. Um, I think that that right? is, yeah, yeah, that is, it's, it is kind of combined with the, the, the audio design of each of these scenes um, and that the, the visual elements and kind of the, the repetitive uh, movements and whatnot do not just kind of impart this feeling upon the viewer, but also impart that feeling on the characters in the film themselves. Right. And they, oh. they are experiencing the same sounds. He is, there's the, the, the very long scene in the very middle uh, where he's talking to the woman that he's having an affair with uh, while they're kind of uh, eating some food after, after having sex. Um, and he, he, in the background, there's, you know, kind of this movement of the, these mine carts back and forth. And he is talking about how he stares every single day out the window and sees these mine carts kind of moving back and forth. And, um, I think it's very clear that the the those aspects of this existence impact these characters as much as it is kind of symbolically impressing upon us, the viewer. And that's your that's like, your allusion to uh, Eraserhead and um, Elephant Man. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just just got that right. Like, that like yeah. like those those sounds are crushing, right? And and they're like dehumanizing in the sense that like people aren't meant to hear these things every day. It's like there's something anti-human about that. Yeah, and, and specifically, I think with something like Razorhead, I think that, uh, uh, you know, kind of the, the the interesting part, I think specifically to the main character of this film, Carer, and I guess kind of the main character of Razorhead as well, is that they are people who are very distinctly removed from, from any sort of understanding about the uh, kind of uh, economic conditions that exist around them. I think that we do see people who are making a living in this film, right? Like the woman he's having a, an affair with is a lounge singer. Uh, you know, he talks to the bartender who offers him the job. That is kind of ostensibly at least their kind of how they make a living. Uh, but we is, unless I'm wrong, we don't know what the main character's career is. We don't know what he does for work or if he does anything. He is completely removed from that existence. He's, um, and I think that's pointed, right? Like, I think, I think you're right. I think we don't know that, and it's definitely intentional, right? Like, he, it's like another level of alienation from labor. <laughs> it's, it's like this kind of larger kind of, yeah, aimlessness, ennui, kind of this, this very aimless existence that he lives, uh, and, like, just everything is crushing down on him in that manner. And it's like... Again, it's like so devoted to making that point over the course yeah, of two hours. He seems to be he seems to be living in what is essentially like a factory outpost, right? But we don't even know what the factory's for. Like there's there's this sense in which like this whole place, this whole like um 
this whole operation is headed towards something. It's building something. It's producing something. We don't know what that is, and we're not a part of it, right? <laughs> and, like, that, talk about metaphors. Yeah, he just hangs out at bars all day, which, funny enough, is literally what I want to do. I want to not have a job and just hang out at bars all day, but I'm not allowed to due to the structure of American society, unfortunately. Tear it all down. Um, Harry, when you described it as when you characterize the whole the view of this movie, excuse me, the view, the view of this movie takes of its characters and world as like almost an apology. Uh, it it dovetails nicely with what I was trying to get at in my intro, which was sort of the from the micro to the macro level of looking at this movie. I think that that is how it treats both its characters and its world, and the. At the micro level, it's when you hear, you know, phrases like I'm talking about what when he's talking about, like total uh, uh, disintegration rather than revival and, uh, you know, like the loss of everything and the uh, inconsistency of the world and all these like really, really high, like this very high scripting. Uh, and maybe some of that comes through in the translate in the transliteration and translation of uh, you know localization of the of the script. But um, you know, taking this as the basic meaning and wording of the script, like that goes a long way toward painting the characters. I think for me, anyway, as very like, um, you know, more than their shell, more than what they are, more than their uh, you know, more than their station. Um, and then at a you know larger level, stepping back toward the the sort of the metal look at that, like putting that high language in the mouths of such like horny, angry, conflicted characters is, is kind of like putting those horny, angry, conflicted characters, um, inside of such a dull gray flat world. It's like the, the layering there of the, um, you know, we're looking at what's inside of the thing you're looking at, uh, and only through extensive, six minute shots or is that point going to be driven home only through extensive um you know only tangentially related to handing off a smuggling job uh monologues is that part of you know that what that move what the movie is trying to do through those things i think that the tools that it's using are very like strikingly high scripting and very strikingly long and dull shots to drive home that point for me yeah, that's really, really well said. I, I was really struck by the fact that like these are characters who are as square pegs for a round hole as possible, right? Like I think that their their alienation within the frame of the camera and within the world that they inhabit is is very intentional. I think that these are people we're supposed to be unmoored by, that we're supposed to be distressed by, right? Like there there's a deep fundamental divide between who they are and where they are and what they're doing. And that deep divide, and again, this is where I where I said the the weird Wong Kar Wai DNA sort of lives in this movie is that um and I I know that's the weirdest possible fucking um like connection to make, but like this is a movie about people who are deeply alienated by the world because it does not seem it seems impossible that they could have come out of this right like like who is Carrere and how does he exist in this world right and like. And he's being killed by it. He's being punished by it. And it's like, how did I come to be in this place that is punishing me just for existing? And like, how could I have come out of it in the first place, right? And it's it's fascinating that in my mind, this is sort of, um, this is the character arc of Carrere coming to actually be a part of his environment. And the way he does it is he has that 
that sort of human spark crushed out of him, right? Where that, like the the final scene of this movie is him becoming a dog, essentially, right? And and that's after he's betrayed all of his final principles to do this thing that is not actually going to give him what he wants, and he knows it. Um, that really dovetails nicely with Jason, what you were saying about um, the uh, the systems at place here, right? Where like, in addition to this this crushing environment that these people inhabit, all of the systems. Uh, from the the smuggling to the the industrialization in the factory to the the police network, they seem to be not there to sort of like help or protect people so much as finally prove to these people that they are nothing, right? Like like they're waiting for you to finally make the mistake so that they can finally put you in your place, right? Like like the uh, the bartender, and this is the sort of Shrike, um analog that i found the bartender is like the devil right like he he offers this deal to this guy that he knows is not going to work so that this dude will sell his soul for it right and meanwhile he is the person who ends up with the lounge singer right and like why are these people attracted to the lounge singer in the first place it's because she has a voice Mm. like that's the the recurrent metaphor is literally that that she has something that's worth saying, that it's worth speaking. That's how Carrera characterizes it, is he says, you make a you make a man believe it's worth talking, that it's worth expressing himself mm-hmm. um, the way that she expresses herself. And um, meanwhile, the world is like, it's trying to get you to bark instead, right? And eventually it succeeds because he is reduced by um, the things that he does for want of wanting to speak, right? Yeah, I think that is very well said. I think specifically, I'm going to try and tie this into something Jason said a little while ago, because I think that uh, it's kind of impossible to, well, one, every single writing that I read about this film mentions this, and and we've been talking about it as well, but it's it's kind of impossible to describe the feeling that all of this kind of, uh, uh, you know, imparts on the viewer without mentioning the the use of like extremely long takes uh, that are in this film. Um, And Jason mentioned it earlier, but I do think that there is like a weird uh, it's, it's such a weird thing to watch this movie um, because I, especially in recent years, there's been a very large, I don't know, like resurgence or like from like a commercial standpoint, a lot of like very large films and TV shows and whatnot have started to use uh, very long takes, uh, kind of annoyingly, I think at this point. Uh, but I think that, you know, I, th- I think of something like, uh, true detective, uh, the, the first season of that show, episode four had a very long take, uh, that, you know, discuss what you want about like cuts and whatnot. But like, that was something that I think started, uh, along with the films of like I Alfonso mean, Cuaron, like, who uses a ton of long takes I, I, like Birdman, right? Birdman, children of men, uh, 1917. Like that is something that like, those those films all use these these extremely long takes. Some of them just you know with scare quotes here one take. Um, but it's so completely different than what's being done in this film. Like it it really right. these long takes do not feel showy. And I don't mean to denigrate those films because I like I like Quran a lot. I like nineteen seventeen a lot. I love True Detective. But like it feels so much different here. Where like the the impact that you get is, uh, and this is going to be kind of a pretentious comparison, but it's it's very much like seeing just like a big fucking painting at like an art museum. Uh, and I don't go to too many art museums. I should go to more, uh, maybe when the pandemic's over. But like there's, there's a certain feeling that you get when you see just like a, just a big fucking mural 
uh, at a at an art museum, which is so distinctly different than than what you get in films, because films there's kind of this usually there's this fixed aspect ratio. You're watching on a TV that's a certain size or a, at a movie theater and whatnot. Um, but like walking through a hallway and kind of seeing detail after detail that is part of a larger whole, but is slowly introduced as you like view uh, this kind of larger uh, you know kind of piece uh, is something that like is usually specific to, uh, you know, kind of large paintings and whatnot. Um, but here is, like, kind of in a different way, where, like, so many times uh, Tar will, like, start a shot and then end it in completely different places and slowly, slowly introduce, uh, like, more and more elements that were always in the right. context of the scene but not introduced to the audience. So, like, you'll, you'll see a shot, he'll rotate it just a little bit, and you'll see someone standing... It was just out of frame a second ago. And it's like, this was always there. Right. It's so distinctive that we started we started making jokes about it, right? We're like, at, at one point, you were like, you just know there's going to be some guy spying <laughs> on him in the foreground. And then, like, that didn't happen. And even that felt like a subversion, right? It felt like a joke that, yeah. that R had just played on us. Where, like, he pans over and it's like, oh, here comes the wall. There, There's going to be a guy there. And then there wasn't a guy there. We were there's all like, a guy there. But it's like, but often there is a guy there. Every once in a while, there's a guy there. Right. That demonstrates how, like, like Tar has literally built that vocabulary into us through this movie, through his long shots, right? Like, this movie has its own vocabulary for those things. Yeah, I... It's it's almost like he is like taking, like, a wet t-shirt, and he's just, like, wringing out more water, and just when you think that he's done, nah, he, like, twists the t-shirt, and there's, there's even more there. Uh, it's like every single shot does this. I think the opening shot is probably the one that this film is most famous for. Uh, I mean, even even something like that, where like you start out viewing kind of the the main symbol of this film, which is these mine carts kind of traveling across the sky, and then as he pulls back, you are realizing that you are actually watching it through a window, which kind of recontextualizes the whole thing. Your 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 understanding of it. And then it shows that there you're actually watching a man watch out of this window. At it, it's it's like you know, it's not like never seen anything like it before, but like the entire film was like constantly doing this and it like requires a lot of patience. But, uh, if, you know, if we're tying it back to what I said about like it being a rewarding film to watch, uh, yeah, I'm really finally getting around to answering it. Like, I think that is kind of the thing. Cause so many times you're like, is there going to be something here? And I've been, I've been ranting, but like, here's, here's kind of my last example of that. There's a shot midway through the movie that made no sense to me where, uh, care, Karar is is standing next to a pillar, and it's just him standing next to a pillar. And as the camera moves, you slowly see he's on the right side of the screen, and on the left side of the screen, there are two women standing by a doorway, and you don't know what it means. And you're you know you're oh, yeah. a little, yep. you're thinking, okay, uh, you know he's having They're a shining, pair of the lounge simmer. Yeah, uh, and I was like, okay, he's, what is this shot? Because the shot ends there. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he's having kind of this affair with uh, this this person of the opposite sex. Uh, you know, maybe there's some sort of symbolic meaning here. And at the end of the film, it turns out that the, the doorway where the woman are standing is actually the entrance to uh, the police station. And that he, in the back of his mind uh, has been this thought that he should kind of turn in, uh, maybe not his friends, but the people that he knows in order to kind of uh, advance this plot in order to get with uh, the lounge singer. And it's like, it's rewarding in that way. Cause it's like this scene that didn't make any sense to me is like recontextualized at the very end of the film uh, in like this really wonderful way. Um, 
And it just, it felt like a revelation it, with the very, la- well, not the very last shot, but one of the very last shots of the film when it pans out the window and you see that doorway again, and it's like it's fucking pointing at the TV screen and shit. Great. It's amazing. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And like, I'm sorry, Jason, to interrupt, but like, like connecting that back to the first shot of the film is really smart too. And in even, it illustrates what we're doing here, right? Which is that um, this is, it, it can be a challenging movie to watch, a frustrating movie to watch in the sense that like, I didn't have an immediate emotional connection to it. But after we're going back and sort of reconstructing it via what it's doing by literally just talking about it, right? Like we can literally just talk about like, okay, guys, what do you think the minecart meant? What do you think the dancing meant? What do you think the fact that career kept talking about a voice meant? Um, and all of a sudden, all of these elements are retroactively apparent, right? They were, they were built in from the start and we didn't even realize that we were being taught to see them, but now we are right. And the movie itself also does that formally within the the scope of the frame itself. And that's really fascinating. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron was talking about like the trend of long shots and long takes in movies. And like, it's, it's worth mentioning. It's worth noting that like, when when that happens in a i guess more modern or more mainstream movie even of this era it's it's a showstopper you know like it appears and it is the thing people talk about in this it's like the bread and butter of the movie it is like a challenge and a punishment but it's exactly what the whole movie is built upon rather than like a pivoting point or a cornerstone it's like this movie's absolute baseline is asking you to sit for five and a half minutes before anything appears in the frame that could interact with anything else in the frame to create plot or moment or story. Um, I think that's like fascinating to think about. I guarantee I'm not going to watch this film in maybe for a long time again, just because of that like base experience of watching it. I don't know that I found it as rewarding as Aaron did, but you're definitely making the case for it like being a necessary part of the movie. Yeah, it's that is actually a really good point about the the kind of use of of like long takes. I specifically when like uh, and I, I don't mean to just like take shots at Disney, although maybe they deserve it. But like specifically when like Disney started doing it with like Daredevil and whatnot, it very much was the thing where it's like the scene was there. Yeah, it it was it was an attempt to kind of revive this kind of water cooler. Uh, uh, talk uh, that, that that used to define uh, television, but like now was being introduced as like a, this this method was a way to have some like a specific thing to talk about in an episode, and it was always like it's always at the end of an episode, right? Daredevil is going to spend eight minutes kicking some guys down some stairs, and like I watched it and it's cool, uh, but like it very much was like a thing, as you said, Jason, because it stood in like very stark opposition to the rest of that episode or the rest of what that series was doing. Um, And like here, it's like the exact opposite where it's like every single scene is going to be like this. It is all going to contribute to this larger atmosphere that the the film is utilizing. Yeah. I mean, like I would go you one further and, and even shit on it some more. Right. Which is just to say that like, like when you think about long takes now you're primarily thinking about the technical reason they exist and it's like it's because the director wanted to show off or create a water cooler moment and have people like wow that must have been so hard to do from a technical perspective and that is like the exact opposite of what in my opinion like like movies and and filmed medium uh media should be about right like we're at the point now where tracking shots take you out of the movie 
And it's like, it's frustrating, right? Like sometimes it can make, you can make an argument for being taken out of that movie being actually important to the way that you interact with the movie. Um, like I think that, that 1917's use of tracking shots is actually a pretty smart idea. Um, Birdman, maybe you can make the case for, but like for the most part, like you should never be commenting on the technical mastery, uh, within a movie. And like this isn't doing that because these tracking shots are not like, they don't look like they were hard to pull off although I'm sure they were because they're mostly just like a tracking shot. Like you're never at any point thinking about what it must've been like to shoot this movie. And like, that is absolutely integral to what this movie is doing because instead you're thinking about, okay, like the fact that this movie is filmed this way is, is telling me something about the way that uh, these people are feeling and thinking. And that is the way that you should use camera work, right? Like it's, it's frustrating. I think the the one the one part that I will dis, not disagree with you because I think you'll probably agree with me, but the one thing that does stand out uh, in that manner is the performance of the actors on screen. That is the one thing where I'm like, it's yeah. really impressive. Uh, how I mean, we we joked about it watching. I think a scene that you know was was like 12 minutes or something. But I just like joked like, what if you just like fucked up one line at the end of that? Like you'd it's feel wild, like shit. Yeah, uh, and it's you know these are. Uh, you know, I can't speak to a lot, a lot of these, these actors, uh, they're, they're very like incredibly good in this film. I did, I don't think I had a problem with, with any of the actors in this movie. Um, but you know, they're, they're not actors. They're kind of mostly from what I can tell, kind of local Hungarian actors. Uh, they're not some sort of, they're not people who've gone on to have some, you know, international fame and whatnot. Um, and they're just like doing an incredibly good job of, kind of making this this world feel believable uh and like it's very impressive like the longer scenes go on and people are speaking for a very long time and you just have this kind of one shot on you know one or two people's face it's it's very impressive and like that is the thing you know call that like a technical aspect or whatnot but like that is I will take that any day over like just people talking about like, did you see where they cut that long take? Like when it goes into the alleyway for a minute and it cuts to black, like that I hate that stuff. But like, I think the performance of the actors here is like spectacular to watch for the most part. I'm really glad you brought that up. Right. Because like, and also in a similar way that this movie is making a big formal sort of, um, push using its camera shots in my opinion the acting and the way that the scripting works is doing the same thing where like the entire acting in this movie is like an extended formalist bit right where like it was it was really funny i kept noticing like we almost felt more comfortable talking to one another and cracking jokes when characters were talking than when there wasn't anything happening on screen i think that that was actually emblematic of what was happening which is that when these characters talk in this movie, we talked about it at the top, it's always a monologue and it's always about some like wild bullshit that doesn't seem to have any bearing on what's happening. We're like, at one point, one of the dudes, a career goes off about how he can't stand children because children give the false appearance of hope of the possibility that there might be something better if not for you then for them and he goes off on like a whole like like bane in the prison in uh dark knight rises monologue about how like the fact that that hope exists is actually what creates the possibility for pain he does like the buddhist like suffering is the root or uh desire is the root of all suffering and like that happens over and over again. There's one character in particular, the old woman who exists to recite long biblical passages about 
how God is punishing us, basically, right? And she she continually confronts Carrere as he sort of aimlessly stands outside his um his would be lover's um apartment and and talks to him about this and like that it's that is symbolic of how detached these people are right we're like like you walk around in this this blasted empty landscape doing nothing except for going in and out of bars and going to sleep and then somebody stops you to talk to you and you talk to them for 15 minutes about philosophy it's wild right like it's like how did that happen how did that come out of you just now and it's like that is the point right is is that like we're supposed to be sort of like baffled and dumbstruck by the fact that these people care this much and are thinking this much and they're so desperate right whenever anybody's talking in this movie they're desperate they're desperate to express something to to give voice to something before it's too late and even Carrera says that in one of his many monologues he says like like people are so desperate to give voice to what they're feeling before they fall into their graves but they can't because they're already falling and like that's the whole point of this thing right is that like you're already being destroyed by circumstances the person you are the person you thought you could be is already being damned and corrupted and you don't have time to to make it right uh that was such a great central metaphor and i think that speaks to what the acting is doing and it's it's really wild to see how this movie integrates all of those things right like the cinematography the framing the shooting the acting the scripting it all comes together to to produce this thank you for putting uh grandma death in perspective for me because i was having a hard time you know apart from the baseline you know the surface level understanding of what the character was doing and how she was like moving the characters around her um like the purpose of her like why she was just constantly reciting the old testament uh but i want to dig into um something that cody was saying sort of all that we've got going around the characters and the reward uh and sort of the um the various pieces of this movie being worth waiting for. How does that play off of what you were saying about, about like the visual texture of this movie? We really have, we've really spoken about the form of it, but we haven't really spoken about, um, you know, the things that we end up seeing in the frame and whether or not they are like attention grabbing, but it sounds like the, the, like what's on screen and sort of the visual noise was also worthwhile to you and, and some stuff stuck out. What, how, how are these things interacting off that for you? Yeah, I, and I guess my experience with this is probably not what Belatar would have intended uh, in that the four of us are watching. Uh, we're, we're having ourselves a bit of a, a fellas night watch uh, this movie on our respective screens. And like in the midst of everything that isn't isn't happening, the fact that I am able to see texture uh, at all um, feels like this sort of like the movie reaching out and like joining the party in its own way like i should not realistically feel so happy to see like sticky ass barroom floors um quarantine probably almost certainly has something to do with that it, it gestures at this sort of like interpersonal relationship that the movie has with the viewer and i think we've all sort of gestured at that a little bit like another like kind of textural example uh of that is like when we see the singer um on stage uh i harry cited it as a big like twin peaks the return end credits vibe um but like we're we're creeping ever closer to, to like again this like very excellently remastered screen like ever closer ever closer for for what feels like a, a half hour in reality was probably like eight to ten minutes um and we and like we go not only do we hit the stage and and go up to like right up next to her face but we go backstage we see 
like the instruments that are being played um we made fun of like the we didn't make fun of the person playing the saxophone but like there is a certain commentary there and like the the fact that these people exist uh exist in this movie and we are so up close and personal is like this sort of like texture that isn't granular necessarily and then the fact that the like the next scene is the the singer's husband um sebastian saying like don't like but don't don't creep on my wife anymore it like leads you to, like like my first reaction was like okay uh, like i am this dude and like he and i are both creeping up on this stage and like that is this character this movie slapping me in the face it like adds to this relationship between like the viewer and the work itself that like it adds a little something extra um beyond like you know this screen separating us like uh, whether it's sloppy floors or like like a jarring edit to a character speaking directly to you like i think that all combines for like a more textured uh rewarding experience um for things that are figuratively or literally um within the frame but i will uh i will kick it to harry Thanks, Cody. I just wanted to say uh, we've we brought up the dancing in that that filthy floor a couple of times, and it is just filthy. Uh, I I was so distressed by it because I'm <laughs> such an anxious person, I guess. But um, that's that's like a really important part of this movie, right? Like we've talked, I've alluded to it before, but like the whole second half of this movie, from like hour one to like hour one and 45 minutes it's like this big dance party that's totally decontextualized from everything else right like the the main characters are there and they have part of their arc and part of their argument there but for the most part we're just watching um uh we're just watching this this dance scene play out with these actors and it is it is like still as crushing as anything else like we talked about uh Aaron at one point you said this just looks like the worst and it kind of does because like there there are these people like making these big loops doing these big sweeping boring dance steps on this like filthy floor um and the whole movie gives way so we can watch this but that is an interesting departure from the rest of the movie right like in contrast to these characters who are all totally involved in their own doomed plots against one another basically we get these people who seem to actually be making a living at this place uh in isolation with one another but they are with one another right like they're not afraid of touching one another they're not afraid of dancing together the old woman actually says at one point like there's there's nothing better than finding another person when there is heat and music because then you can relate right and there is some suggestion that that these people have found a way to escape from this this terrible place that um that these characters are so desperate to escape from because that's what this movie is really all about is like all of these characters are in search of an exit right um sebastian has these mounting debts that he has to get out from under and that makes him desperate enough to take this smuggling mission uh ferrer is desperate to escape with uh the lounge singer who represents an escape from repetitiveness to him uh even the lounge singer herself uh wants an escape that's why she's singing and that's why she spoilers ends up with the bartender but these people meanwhile they are seeking an escape another way and it's just by being there with one another right and understanding the ways in which they're all trapped together it's sort of the inverse of sartell's other people it's that that stupid um homily about how like in heaven uh nobody can move their elbows and in hell it's the same thing but in heaven everybody feeds each other and in hell everybody can't get at their food right um it's it's a bit like that right and 
meanwhile, um, these people are so tested by their desires, right? Where like Ferrer is in this sort of extended devil's temptation where like, is he going to finally do the basest thing, quote unquote, that he keeps threatening to do, which is turn in uh, Sebastian, condemn this one man for a setup that he himself set up uh, so that he can be with this woman and, and commit this transgression against his fellow man. Um, in the end, spoilers, of course he does it and it doesn't work out, right? Because it, it turns out that the bartender himself had also set up Ferrer where he gets away with the cabaret singer. Um, Ferrer doesn't get what he wants. The, the setup was not just a setup on Sebastian. It was a setup on Ferrer. Ferrer is reduced to a dog in the environment uh, and and barks his head off at this uh, other dog that that we had seen throughout the film. Um, meanwhile, nobody escapes, right? So there is no escape, and seeking an escape, wanting an escape, is what condemns you, right? Is is what I think this movie is doing, especially with that dance sequence. Um, and what a fascinating way to make that happen, right? And it's something that that you do visually and through film, which is what makes this movie so realized and so uh, rewarding, as Aaron said. For sure. Um, it's, it's like, it's the most human lens through which to view like the sorting coming sorted comings and goings of, of this whole plot, right? You know, there's uh betrayal, there's, um, uh, sex, there's smuggling, there's, uh, but like the dance sequence in particular, and I'm glad you brought it up is one of the ways that it like brings the camera brings the lens closer to those actual characters. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, closer to those humans metaphorically, sometimes, uh, even like biologically, Aaron. Look, I, okay. So I made, there's a, there's a, uh, I don't know, probably what, like a four minute shot, something like that during oh, this film. This. this is happening now. I, okay. Jason wants to do it. We're, we're doing it. Look, I, I was, well, I was, I was, all right, here's, here's the thing. There's a shot where the, uh, the lounge singer is dancing with uh, her husband, and they're both just kind of drunkenly dancing. And it does look, it does look like during that shot uh, that there is a, uh, a pubic hair uh, at the bottom of the frame. It's just on the lens, and it's just sitting there. I don't actually know enough about filmmaking to know. It might just be some sort of other visual artifact. It does look kind of unmistakable. But, but well, it does I, look yes, it does. It, it does. It, I mean, Visual it's undeniably. Aaron? I am trying to be diplomatic and and uh, political about how I am phrasing this. But it could it could be there's it could be something else is all I'm saying. But it does uh, it does look like a certain. It looks like a hair. Uh, we did, we like did refer to this incident as pubgate. Uh, Aaron did notice it first. Um, we were skeptical as to whether or not the the pube uh, existed. At which point, um, when the husband turns and he is wearing a white jacket as opposed to the undeniable black jet dress, the pube did become visible, and pubgate was proven uh, real. The pube sort of became a, a prevailing uh, favorite character for many of us at this point in the film. Hello, boys. Did you miss me? Yes, this was, uh, Cody did give voice to the pube, which we, we very much appreciate. We had joked that the pube was going to receive third or fourth billing, um, in the, in the film. It was on screen for an extended period of time. You can look for it. Uh, you can perhaps give another voice to it. Do you want to, do you want to say a few words, Cody, about, uh, the, our, our friend? 
Well, I can't stay to chat for too long, but I think this is a gentleman's five. I will see you boys on Letterboxd. Skadoodle. And there he goes. Wow, the man the cameo from cameo from an actor in the film. Yeah, Perry the Pube, everyone. This is, the, this is our greatest get on this podcast, other our, than the our, time we had. Uh, yeah. He's going to win Best Guest at the 2021 Golden Berries, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well then I am all out of thoughts guys. Um, is there anything else we want to uh, squeeze out before we head into our final segment? Um, this is like a really good movie, I guess it's, it's funny because like, it's, it, I hate to just be that pretentious guy because like I legitimately, I don't know that I had a great time watching this movie. It seems weird to say that you would have a good time watching this movie, but it's, it's very worth seeing and very worth thinking about as hopefully, uh, we've, we've proven, um, right. Because it's, it's doing a lot with like the medium of film to express like, like very trenchant, very nuanced and, um, complicated universal sort of existential themes, literary themes, but it's doing it, uh, through cinema. Right. And that is a worthy pursuit. And it's something that is very realized here. This is like, it's like, uh, what if, um, what if Sartre had made movies or what if, um, Camus had made movies instead of doing what they did, right? You would get something like this probably. Um, well then, uh, Harry, do you want to help me ring in our final segment of the show? I would love to, Jason. The final segment of the show is known as <gasps> Cody's Noties. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, thank you as always, gentlemen, for that brilliant uh, lead in. Um, we've had a lot of fun today here on trial of talking about the film damnation, uh, which is a Hungarian film. Uh, Hungarian cinema as a whole is undoubtedly a blind spot for all of us here, but there are a, a number of films that fall in our more direct periphery that have ties to Hungary, uh, either through the utilization of the Hungarian language, or perhaps due to some parts of principal photography taking place there. Um, now this particular segment doesn't necessarily have a formal name, but there is a certain image I associated with it during my prep for the episode. And it's, uh, uh you know, we're looking to, to broaden our horizons and, whether we're rolling up our sleeves and getting down and dirty in this swamp of knowledge, or we're just, uh, you know, maybe we're just trying on these new bits of information because they happen to be fashionable. I, uh, I think it's time we all put on our, uh, our hungry dungarees. Um, I shipped, I shipped each of you a pair. Wow. I hope, I hope they fit all right. Um, but, uh, I guess while you're all uh, adorning yourselves with your hungry dungarees, um, which I can't say without smirking, uh, I'll go over the ground rules. I will be presenting clues that allude to various films that have some sort of connection to Hungary. Uh, my evergreen disclaimer for these types of games, uh, of course, is that I've done my best to handpick movies that we're all generally familiar with. Um, as I'm reading, if you think you know the film being described, raise your little Zencaster hand. Uh, once I see a hand raised, I will stop reading. I'll call on you. If you're correct, you'll get a point. If you're not correct, we'll keep going until someone can get it right. Each person will only get one guess per round, so use that guess wisely. Um, does everybody have their hungry dungarees on? Zip yeah. and button. Yep. Wow. Uh, I was just gonna. I was gonna do the. Um, is it Fast and Furious Seven, where The Rock is uh, imprisoned, and they ask him how his um, how his uniform fits, and he says it's a little tight in the crotch as always. Do you remember that line, Aaron? I'm looking at you. Yeah, that is a that is a good bit. So that that's what I was gonna say, but I just instead said the whole bit. So there you are, go. Are dungarees just overalls? Is that what dungarees are? 
Yeah, they're kind of, their overalls, they can be used like for like work um, or they could sure. just be, you know, things you wear. So I kind of split the difference and covered my bases in the intro. Um, you can wear them for whatever you would like, I, I think. I can't remember the exact flavor of dungarees I, I shipped you, but <laughs> I, I trust you to make those look dope. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, of course. Um, we're going to start with a bit of a softball here, uh, I hope. Uh, this film was in contention for several golden berries this past year. Um, it is an animated film that abides by the Rashomon rule. I saw Aaron, then Harry, then Jason. Um, Son of the White Bullshit, I was up first. Son of the White Mare. Son of the White Mare is, uh, is correct. Um, Son of the White Mare is, yep, that's, uh, of course, it's a Hungarian production. The film's language is Hungarian. Director Marcel Jankovic, who is vaguely tied to a goofy movie. Listen to that episode for more information on that. He is <laughs> Hungarian. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I'm sitting here hungry for a, a Blu-ray release of this freaking movie. Am I right? Here, here. Here, here. Yeah, indeedly doodly. Can we talk about how um, Sebastian is also the tree shaker? Was that on Mike? That was on I Mike. Think that was on Mike. Or was it on Mike? Oh, wow. It was on I've Mike, got a baby. memory of uh, an hour and eight minutes, apparently. Uh, hey, sometimes that's all you need. Um, we're, but we're going to move right along to number two. I've got no transition. Uh, we've got a, a classic sci-fi film, or arguably the classic sci-fi film. Uh, many alternate versions of this film have come out over the years. Uh, I see Aaron's hand up. Aaron, what's your guess? Uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Um, reading the rest of that, uh, hopefully those alternate versions will be lost in time, like Tears in Rain. Um, because why not? Uh, I'm ripping the following excerpt uh, almost verbatim from Wikipedia. Edward James almost portrays Gaff. Uh, he drew on uh, diverse ethnic sources to help create the fictional city-speak language that his character uses in the film. His initial address to Deckard at the Noodle Bar is partly in Hungarian and uh, roughly translates to horse dick, uh, I guess meaning bullshit. No way, you are the Blade, Long. Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> wait a minute. You're, you're telling me that in Hungarian, there's a part of Blade Runner where the guy goes, You're the Blade, Blade Runner. Yeah, I, Wikipedia says Blade Runner. I didn't get a chance to rewatch uh, Blade Runner pl- prior to recording, but yeah, it's, uh, you are the Blade, beat Blade Runner. Um, so incredible. So there's that. Um, with uh, yeah, so Aaron's uh, the only one on the board here. He's got two points. Um, with that, uh, with that horse stick out of the way, we can move on to number three. Uh, this was a film that a number of us here were hoodwinked into seeing. Uh, we were under the impression that we bought, uh, and I saw Jason's hand followed by Harry's. Jason, is this Terminator Dark Fate? It is indeed Terminator Dark Fate. We were under the impression we bought tickets to Terminator 2 Judgment Day, but we saw this instead with previous trial of guest Logan Lafferty. Um, so yeah, uh, Terminator I Dark Fate. I remember going to movies, you guys. Nightmare. I'm not trying to cry on the pod right now. Um, yeah, one of the more wild movie-going experiences uh, stories of my life. Uh, parts of principal photography of that movie took place at the, uh, pardon the mispronunciation, um, which I go, I guess that goes for this entire bit, but the Origo Film Studios in Budapest, as well as uh, some shooting took place on location in the city of Komaro. Um, so 
Terminator Dark Fate. Um, we'll see who has uh, who has the real Dark Fate at the at the end of this game. We've got Aaron with a commanding lead with two points, and uh, Jason bringing up the rear with one, and Harry bringing oh, up no. the mega rear. Commanding, commanding is a weird way to say he's got one more point he- than me. I mean, that's twice as We many. know who has what points. Let's just move on to the next question, please. <laughs> well, in case, in, well, I, I can get a clean read of this now. So Aaron's at two, Jason's at one, Harry's at zero. Uh, this next film, number four, uh, this movie was released in 2014 and ended up being the start of an action franchise. Jason? Is this John Wick? Tick tock, Mr. Trilove. It is indeed John Wick. Um, I'm attaching... I'm attaching a gigantic asterisk next to this, and I'll explain why. It is widely sourced on the internet that this movie contains Hungarian-speaking parts, but I couldn't find anywhere what those lines were and when in the movie they took place. Um, but I'm rolling with it, and uh, at the very least, we got to mention John Wick in an episode, so uh, shout out to, to John Wick. And I got to earn another point. I am now locked in a commanding head-to-head neck-and-neck tie. <laughs> Do you remember when they got Peter Stormare for the sequel to John Wick and he's in that very first scene? Yeah, I do. Jesus Christ. This movie's a rule, dude. Yeah. I think the first one is still my favorite, but I love all of them quite a bit. I like two quite a bit, uh, but yeah, yeah, I think the first is great. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, hopefully this will turn out to be a, a game that's equally great as we go into our final Hungarian adjacent film. Uh, I know everyone said it after this movie came out, uh, but Ana de Armas is going to be fucking huge. Um, Harry first, followed by Aaron. That's Knives Out. Harry, give it to me. No, Harry! We, c- you we could have... I would have shared it with you. I would have shared it with you, man. This is, this is my version of damnation. This is me doing the reporting you to the police so that <laughs> nobody wins. So, Knives Out is not the correct answer. What? Aaron, <laughs> what's your guess? Uh, Blade Runner 2077? That is not correct either. Jason, what is what is the answer to this question? I, I accidentally hit my hand up. I didn't mean to until the question well, was asked. Uh, we have two incorrect yeses. Oh, can I? Can I? No, no. Absolutely no, 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 no. Okay, I'm not going to say anything then. Jason, go ahead. I, I, would like, I would like for Cody to finish the question. He mentioned one actress's name. Uh, I know, so... I know everyone said it after this movie came out, but Ana de Armas is going to be fucking huge. What movie is this? That's all. Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner... <laughs> I said 2077! Oh! Cyberpunk has ruined my life. Jesus Christ. Bit of a misdirection because uh, my my clue was Aaron Grossman's letterbox, letterbox review for Knives Out. Knives Out, yeah. yeah. Fucking asshole. <laughs> Uh, Cody's twisties. Um, no Hungarian language in this one. But in. <laughs> from what I can tell, uh, some of the production took place in Hungary, in part due to Ridley Scott's familiar uh, familiarity, excuse me, with their networks and facilities. Uh, shouting out once more the Origo Studios backlot in Budapest. That was one of the spots where uh, production for Blade Runner twenty forty nine took place. Um, but with that, uh, I mean, thanks to you, fellas, for playing. Uh, final score here. Uh, Jason won the day with three points. Uh, Aaron followed up with two. Um, Harry, better luck next noties. Um, uh, I don't know about y'all, but I might just keep my hungry dungarees on for the rest of the day. For the rest of the day. You know, I appreciate the better luck, Cody, but 
I really, you, I love to see Jason win for once. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's there's it's a nice. there's a first time for everything. You know, the the kid had Thank it coming. Thank you very I much think. for listening to Try Love. This has been our I episode have a lot about of, damnation. I'm just gonna lay back on these laurels that I've accumulated over the over the years. In over the 1988 Hungarian film. Fine. Thank you. Directed by Bela Tarr playing at the Trilon soon. Please go to Trilon.org to find tickets, merch, and other cool ways to support the Trilon. Um, I believe it's also streaming on Vimeo through Arbolos Films, the distributor of the re-release. Uh, but if you are able to, and if you're double-masked, and if there aren't too many other people in the theater, uh, and you feel comfortable with it, you can also see it at the Trilon because it's playing there. Uh, until then, you can find our podcast at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason, and you can find me at Nintendoofus. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm going to kick back and uh, spend the rest of my night endlessly drinking cheap brandy uh, until it stupefies me. Um, but I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. All right, Mac and Nation, I know that I let you down this time. All right. Uh, like I said, Jason's win was a long time coming. We had to get it out of the way sometime. We might as well get it out of the way in Hungary. Uh, never fear. However, I will be back on top. You can take that to the bank. I've been Harry Mackin. You can find me at Shitaki Harry. We will see one another again soon. Harry, I will Venmo you $5 right now if you can name one person in Mackin Nation. It's a it's a metaphorical. I have a fan base. That's what they call oh, them. So. Okay, all right. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, my name's Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease, although I'm still private, so whatever. And that's the sad end of it all, son.
vele meg teljes és boldog Hogy lenne vége Nem fog elmúlni 